Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was, to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. Today, I'd like to talk about, uh, it's going to be a four-part series, and I did a post in our Facebook group a couple weeks ago about, um, you know, what are the reasons for obesity? We've talked about this on this podcast a lot, and so it's kind of a rhetorical question, but I put four possibilities there. You know, is it based on... um, that our diet, and in essence, it was asking what sort of diet should we be having to live a healthy life, right? Putting on a positive note. And I uh, outlined four possible um, ways of thinking. One was to compare our intestinal differences across mammalian species, right? So from the apes to the chimpanzees to the dogs, the cats and the cattle and so on and so forth. And we'll get into that. The other was, oh, it's based on our genome. And it's all a genetic thing, and you really got to understand your genome. That would be the second or another option. The other is, well, historically, we have, as an evolving species, I'm going to go with the assumption that you believe in evolution, and that man, as we've, as he's been extracted in the fossils and such, really, modern man came to be about 200,000 years ago, and from our chimps to going further. But it wasn't up until about 10,000 years ago did our diet change. This is all far less than hypothetical, but this is just following the evidence, archaeological evidence and anthropological evidence as it's come. And so the idea that, well, our diets didn't change until the agriculture industrialization um, happened, and that's about in the Fertile Crescent about 10,000 years ago. That and dairy are pretty close. First, it was the the wheat out of Egypt, and then it was uh, the dairy out of various mammals. So there's that. And um, there was uh, a blood type orientation to it as the fourth possibility. So today, I would like to talk primarily about our guts. And uh, where do we get the justification that based on our GI tract, our gastrointestinal tract, from stomach to small intestine to large intestine, and we're going to leave it at that, and we know, we'll get into it, um, that this it does have some relevance. Can you base everything on it? I'm going to leave that up to you. That's not a question that I feel I have to answer. So 
I think it's relevant to have a working knowledge, working common knowledge. It doesn't have to be so esoteric. You don't need to be an anthropologist. You don't need to be an archaeologist. You don't even need to be a medical doctor. In fact, I wish most medical doctors would know uh, what we're going to talk about. And a good portion of the information that I have comes from a talk that I attended by Dr. Ann Childers. She's a doctor in the Northwest. She's a diabetic as well as being a psychiatrist, a child, adolescent, adult psychiatrist, which is really pretty interesting. Um, one of the talks that I attended that she spoke at, and I, she made a reference to animals, and she was very big into, uh, and is very much into uh, her dogs and dogs and the diets of dogs. I'm going to get to that a little later, but it was very similar to, I uh, shared with you about the um, nephrologist, the kidney doctor who talked about her cats that they had and it was how they were getting sick and couldn't digest things properly on a processed food diet, otherwise known as cat food diet. And finally she gave up and just started giving them raw meat and cats are obligate carnivores. And so gave them meat, chicken, fish, and so on, and everything became right. And they're great, happy cats now. Well, a similar story that I'll share with you later is also going to be about dogs, even though dogs are not considered obligate carnivores. They're considered a little more omnivorous. And that's sort of up in the air, meaning uh, perhaps they are obligate carnivores. So we're going to look at the gastrointestinal track comparative differences and similarities to see if that speaks to the kind of diets that we have. So that's going to be one vein that we're going to talk about today. And we're going to go off on a few other offshoots of um, a little into autism, a little into mental disorders, because it's all related. Um, I think she's a fascinating woman to, uh, sorry, a fascinating doctor to uh, listen to that uh, she presents from just like you remember, Dr. Christopher Palmer uh, came from the idea of mental disorders. And he referred to, and I've referred to subsequently a number of times that uh, uh, Dr. Nora Volkoff, who's the head of the addiction agency, U.S. addiction agency, and how they're now starting to study the ketogenic diet for its effect on mental disorders. So there's a big circle here that we're going to be talking about. Okay, then let's get started. Um, Let's see, I have some slides. I'm trying to get organized here in front of me. Is that there's a few points here that I think are important to mention. Diet is really important to mental health, however you look at it or not. And so to sort of jump ahead, we've talked a little bit about this because I like to tie things together that you've heard before. We're talking about the hyperglycemia events and hypoglycemia events, right? That roller coaster. So you see that in your mind. And so what does that have to do with, okay? Just have that as a, as a slide in your mind. There's up and down and up and down and up and down. This is how most Americans eat today. And in fact, it was even recommended by the uh, Diabetic Association, ADA, up until, and, and still is currently, but now it's no longer the only way of, quote unquote, maintaining a diabetic diet, eating six times a day and high carb. That's... They're now actually starting to have a low-carb alternative to uh, treating, they don't call it reversing, treating diabetes. So anyway, just think of the roller coaster 
hypoglycemic diet. <clears throat> okay, the optimal diet is determined in large by the gastrointestinal system, the gut. Hmm. Diet that meets the needs of human carnivore holds the greatest promise for mental health. And that would be, as you would know it, low carb, high fat, the Banting diet, primarily that term is used in the UK and in South Africa. I don't believe in Australia. And then the ketogenic diet, which as you know, if it's the classic ketogenic diet, it means it's 20 grams of carbs or less per day, high fat, and so on. Okay. And so we're starting with looking at what do most Americans eat today? They wake up and they have breakfast. And what is breakfast? It's breakfast cereals, right? Even if it was a hundred years ago and it was somebody who had to get up early to make um, oatmeal from raw, raw oatmeal, it's still a pretty high glycemic diet. Now we add a hundred years to that and then we've simply refined those carbohydrates and made it even worse. By the way, had you talked to me 15 years ago or my first couple of years of practice, I was giving talks, you know, at the library and town hall and police departments and so on and so forth, these medical talks. And I would say that, you know, fiber is really important. And I would tell them about digestible fiber and non-digestible fiber, or what they call soluble and non-soluble fiber, and tell them about the difference and how it's important. And guess what? I don't believe any of that anymore. I absolutely do not believe that there is any rule for fiber. Yes, if you have a high fiber diet, you will have a faster transit time, right, from the length, which is the time in which you take that food, that veggie, that's where fiber comes from, into your mouth and before it passes out of your rectum. That's what a transit time is. So the more fiber, the faster it passes through you, the less fiber. So if you're on a carnivore diet, um, I think I can speak for most carnivores now, they probably have a bowel movement once every three days. Maybe some have it once a day, but I would tend to doubt that. And um, it's not bad. And that's another thing. I would, if I counseled my my patients as they came in, you know, looked at their bowel history and their diet history, of course. And if they didn't poop three times a day, there was a problem. And then I would look for a history of antibiotics and then I'd give them probiotics and they would appear to be getting better. But I really didn't change things much for them. You know, now I would sound very radical by saying, you know, all those veggies, don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they'd come back for their second appointment. But apart from that, um, that's how I did it. And those are the things I believed in. And those are the things I talked about at the various locations on and on and on, you know, this basic stuff they needed to know. Okay, then. And supposedly there was plenty of research about all that then. Okay. So let me propose to you an idea that You'd have to go way back in my podcasts to um, the explorers up in the Arctic to get the answer to this particular question, is that we talk about a thing called seasonal affecting disorder, SAD, seasonal affecting disorder. And it happens in the winter of the higher latitude, well, the winter periods of whether you're Northern Hemisphere or Southern Hemisphere, but that the sun gets so weak you become less um, exposed to vitamin D and therefore you have a, a affecting disorder, a mood affecting disorder. Well, you know, that's not wrong. That whole correlation with vitamin D is not wrong. But, but the kind of diet you have to have 
in order for that to be true is a high carb diet, which is what basically all Americans have had, have now, and certainly what I did have before, even though I thought my diet was better than all the others because we grew our veggies and put things away. And yeah, we had meat, but we had plenty of, you know, organic veggies. Okay, now let's walk north, way north. And ideally a hundred years ago before pesticides and so on. So we'll remove that variable. And so what do we find? We find that there's a population of people, there's actually a number of different populations of people that we collectively called Eskimos or Inuits. And they're all Native Americans dispersed over the, you know, from Siberia to Northern Canada to Alaska, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Greenland, Iceland, and so on. So there's, they're not really one people, but we collectively call them Inuits. They have their own sub categories for that as well. But one thing they all had in common is that they spend half of the year in pretty dark and completely dark some days for months on end. So how is it that they didn't get vitamin D deficiency? How is it that they didn't have mood disorders? So some of you are saying, well, how would he know that they didn't because nobody's around a hundred years ago taking that kind of data? Okay, smart Alec. Um, we're not going to go there. We're just going to say that it hasn't been it hasn't been determined. And way back in the 1910s, 1920s, when there were plenty of Arctic explorers, that that wasn't seen. And nor did they have bad teeth. So how does that, you know, there's no, right? They didn't have any vitamin C. So how could that possibly exist? How could they have good teeth, well, good skin, good teeth and good skin, not be depressed? Hmm. The clock's ticking on that one. Do you know the answer? And they had a very high fat diet. So think of the blubber of the seals, um, the occasional whale, but mostly it was uh, fish and seals and walrus and things like that. So pretty fatty. They, they're the ones that could, they're all mammals, by the way. Those are all mammals that I just named. So uh, when they say fish, there really is no such thing as a fatty fish. There are fatter fish, such as salmon, but they're in northern, you know, Arctic, the fish that you would catch in the Arctic, but they are not fatty. It's the mammals that are fatty. The seals, the walruses, the whales, they're fatty. So anyway, um, they don't have vitamin D deficiency. They don't have vitamin C deficiency. They live in the dark for half the year. And they live in, of course, all that sun uh, for the other half of the year. So how is their life sort of doable? Well, primarily, it obviously comes from the foods they eat, which are devoid of fiber for one, it's devoid of uh, veggies, and yet their life is fine. It's not fine anymore, by the way. It's changed significantly in the last hundred years, as you can probably guess. But back in the good old days, it sounds like it was a hard life even back in the good old days, but at least they were healthy. Okay, so what coming forward, what changed? Uh, well, um, their teeth got worse. They began to have uh, mental disorders. So let me see if I can uh, read you some of the things I've came up with. Okay, good health and no seasonal depression and winter darkness from year 2000. Hard to believe, huh? The lack of seasonality in anxiety and depression may reflect the low propensity for seasonal affecting disorder, aka SAD, which I just told you about. This has been described in the Atlantic's Atlantic population. Okay. For circumpolar people in winter, diet looked a lot like 
walrus, and seal. Fatty, mammal, you know, so you had, they were carnivores. A lot of fat and a lot of meat, and that was it. However, uh, the prevalence of mental disorders, mental and behavioral disorders, as reported in Iceland, this particular reference that I'm reading now in 2003, increased. And primarily it was associated with dietary changes. So what happened? Well, when they used to just have what I've just told you about, the seal and walrus and whale meat, and now that they're having Pepsi, and now that they're having all sorts of carbs that they actually never had in their diet, things are changing. And so the evidence is is mounting to, to say, to be real straightforward about it, the change in traditional diets has already led to increased health problems such as obesity, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, of course, mental health declined substantially during the same period um, over the last hundred years. Amazing. Okay, then. Now, what that could be, if you're thinking, that could be a argument for, well, wait a minute, they have a whole different genome. They're, they're Inuits. You just said they're different people, but they're humans, and we are much more closely related to each other than we are different. I'm not saying genome, because we certainly test for genomic differences when patients come in, when clients come in. This is what we do look at. So there is a factor there, and I'm not trying to give you the answer. I'm trying to say that, yes, it's there. Things are not black and white. We are not robots. We are not automatons. We are not cookie-cutter like each other but we have much more similarities than we do differences. So when we compare our guts, we have to now, now I'm going to go to primates. So when we compare our gut, or if you want to be more specific, if we can compare our belly, and we're not talking about obese to obese, we're talking about a healthy human to a healthy ape, healthy human to a healthy um, chimpanzee, that we have differences. So the thing is that the normal belly of a man or woman, human, is flat. It doesn't, it is obviously not meant to be obese, but it's certainly not meant to be bulgy like an ape. So an ape, if you've seen it, has a big paunchy belly, and it's not because the ape is unhealthy. And I'm going to give you a comparison in a little second when I get to that graph. Actually, it's coming up. Um, one of the big differences, so when you compare various apes, a gibbon versus a orangutan versus a gorilla versus a chimpanzee versus a human, and another one called uh, uh, Simiang, call it another ape, that their stomachs all all stomachs, including humans and chimpanzees, are pretty much the same. Pretty much the same. Within a small difference. So the smallest stomach would be the orangutan. But other than that, we're pretty much spot on to be about this. And it's not that difference by much. Okay, now we go to the small intestine. So the shortest small intestine is by the... Shortest small intestine is by the gorilla. The longest small intestine is by humans. In fact, the intestinal length, which is in humans about 20 feet, is about over four times longer than in a gorilla. So where do the rest fall? 
So if you go to Gibbon, orangutan, pretty much all of them, ch chimpanzees a little on the short side, pretty close to, a chimpanzee is pretty similar to us. So they're all short. So the only long, or the longest short intestine is humans by a long shot. A lot longer than chimpanzees as well. Okay, what about the colon? So the colon is, you can also call the colon your large intestine. So the colon, the shortest colon is humans. And so that's about 25, it's about a quarter of the length of everybody else's. So you go, well, that's interesting. So you could say that, I mean, the one striking difference in this comparison is wicked long, small intestine and very short, large intestine. When we say large intestine is kind of the width, right? As opposed to the length. And so what does that mean? What does that, you know, who cares? What is other than length? What else can I tell you here is that we have, let's, let's open up the mammalian comparison here. So in terms of, um, we're going to say in terms of the colon, so the last part, your lar large intestine, colon and rectum, man, cat, and dog, actually it goes man and cat are almost exactly the same. Dog is a little shorter. And who has the, so as being relatively short, short by, it's a quarter of what everybody else is. In terms of cattle, very long, sheep, very long, horse, very long, pig, um, long, like three or four times as long as humans, but not as long as cattle and sheep. I won't keep going. Um, you're probably not interested in a rat or a human or a guinea pig or, okay. But man, cat, and dog are almost identically the same. Whereas cattle, sheep, and sort horses are, are hugely different. So let's think of that. Cattle, sheep, horse, pig, not so much pig. Let's go horse, chat, sheep, and cattle. What do they eat? They're ungulates. Ungulates meaning they they chew and they chew and they chew. And so they chew their cud, right? The cattle has four different parts of the stomach and it actually does. And it actually turns the carbohydrates into saturated fats. So that's what happens in the stomach. Um, and the reason they need a large colon, they need a large, that long, large intestine is because that's where the final degrading or digestion of veggies and fiber and get fermented and so on and so forth. Humans really can't do that. We really can't ferment much fiber. We can't, uh, we can't extract it. We can't break down the cell walls. All these other guys can break down the cell walls by their long, their big stomachs, their long colons, and they can extract a lot more out of it. Okay then. So what about stomach comparisons? Man and dog and, and pig all look pretty similar actually. About the same size, about the same shape. And you can bet that the ox and the, and the, I don't have a cow in front of me, they all, the ox will stand in, are much different, as we just said. Okay, humans can digest meat easily. They have a stomach pH, acidity, to be able to do that. One to one and a half in terms of a pH. Do you realize a pH of one to one and a half? If you could extract that and you, that's, that can burn through metal, certain metals, I should say. So it's hugely acidic. So water, as you know, is a pH around seven, arguably a little bit more alkaline, a little bit more acidic, depending on where you get your water and what's in it, but we're going to call it seven. Okay. Whereas the small intestine 
manages low residue, low fiber diet. So why did I say that? Because man had a very big, humans had a very big, long, four times as long, small intestine. It doesn't do well. It needs a low fiber diet. Doesn't do well with fiber. High fiber diets mean big, large intestine, long, large intestine. We don't have that. So it's a mismatch. So by looking at our guts, we line up with what carnivores had. We have a larger, large intestine. We have a smaller colon or a colon that's the same size as carnivores. Okay, we don't digest plants well. We can't break down cell walls. And so we can't be chewing a cud and extract. There's no way we can make saturated fats from fermenting plants to break down their cell walls. So that's just not a possibility. So consequently, when you think of not only is breakfast time, meal time, a carbohydrate-based meal, and it's a carbohydrate, it's a refined carbohydrate-based meal, and it's been that way for the last 50 years. So if I grew up on, what did I grow up on? Um, I grew up on Wheaties, and before that, uh, uh, Cheerios, and uh, and so then towards the end, it got even worse, you know, and then there was Captain Crunch. And then you think about how did my folks ever agree to having their kids have this, you know, we haven't gotten to dairy yet, but that's coming up. So anyway, consequently, you, when you see these, um, there's a cereal out now that's called colon blow, colon blow, incredibly high in fat fiber. So this is exactly what we're not suited to. So apart from the fact that it's a processed food, so it's not even, you know, you can't find this concentrated kind of fiber at all in the world, in nature, but it has to be man-made. So it's very processed and it's in the wrong direction if they were trying to improve carbs. Okay. So um, in order to break down plant cellulose, for humans that is, they need to ferment it. That's why things get pickled, right? But if you, um, if you just keep a mouthful of pickle juice for a while, you know, that's acidic. You'll actually start taking off the the enamel of your teeth. So it wasn't something we were meant to do, but that's the only way you can break down plants is by fermenting them and pickling them. So you could say, well, gosh, I heard fermented foods are good for our, our small intestine. Now just think of that. I just told you we, we the small intestine was only for low fiber, low residue diets, i.e. carnivore meat, things like this, meat, fish, chicken, um, so now we're saying, well, yeah, they can eat fermented foods. So you have the NATO kinase, NATO, which is kind of a tempeh, comes from soy, or you have sauerkraut. They're famous for these stories. And yes, they do bring in lactic acid. They do bring in all sorts of other bacteria that do help us digest something that we were not meant to digest in the first place. So yes, you can say there's a truth in that based on inappropriate inappropriate diet recommendation. Okay, you can cook your veggies, right? Don't eat them raw, you can puree them. Um, you can breed vegetables to be more tender. You can chew for a very long time, but basically the bottom line is we weren't meant to eat them. And this isn't my prejudice now, so what else can I tell you about this? Okay, uh, plant technologies, artificial selection, we've now you know, bread, cauliflower, broccoli, and all these things, which we consider uh, really healthy 
And I, I was on, you know, I went to school to learn. I was really healthy. Well, they're nothing like they were. So it's not so much what we're having now is really healthy. It's, it's probably back in the day where they looked pretty much just like weeds. They were much more concentrated with those things. Um, so four of if you want to say, okay. So now when you go back up to the Eskimos, sorry, the Inuits, you know, and they're out there during the night or during the day of their day, uh, fishing, where do they get their vitamin D and so on? Well, they have the organs of the animals they eat. I'm sure every so often there's a polar bear, but polar bear liver can actually be toxic in vitamin A. So, um, a little bit is good and I don't know how much they know, but certainly they have, some of you may remember cod liver oil. There's a whole generation that grew up on that and they can have terrible memories of it, but that was high in vitamin A and vitamin D. So they get their vitamin D from the food that they're eating. And when you're a carnivore, your need for vitamin C is a lot less. I haven't taken vitamin C outside of a few COVID supplementation times uh, in the last couple of years and I'm quite fine. Whereas when I was having carbs, our garden and so on and so forth, and in medical school, I had canker sores periodically. Interesting that. So let's move on to blood sugars and macronutrients. You know, when you think of macronutrients, which are carbohydrates, proteins, and fats, if you think of them as three different kinds of drugs, you have a fast acting, you have an extended, and then you have a slow acting. Fast acting are your carbohydrates extremely fast acting are your processed foods, right? Your processed foods are, your glucose goes up, your insulin comes out. We've talked about this before and you're down and then you get to be hypoglycemic. Your proteins, though, and the protein sparing fats we've been talking about, they're a slow burn. They have to, they do come up. They can make glucose. We've talked at length about that, but they are very slow. They have to go through gluconeogenesis. They have to be stripped apart and they have to be reassembled in your liver to come out the other end as glucose through the Krebs cycle. Now fats, fats are a wicked slow burn. There's not a fast thing about fats. That's why you burn fats when you fast. That's why you burn fats when you starve. That's why you burn fats when you have some proteins, right? Fat, your body needs fats, it needs proteins. There's no such thing as essential carbohydrates. Okay, so what they found is that when you have a high glycemic diet, think of the roller coaster, the up and the down, the up, but with that fast acting carbs, right, drugs, as opposed to this extended proteins or the slow acting fats, they get that roller coaster. Whereas if you're on what they call a low glycemic, a diet that does not convert into glucose very quickly because it's primarily fats and some proteins. And by the way, if you have fats with your protein, so if you actually have a high fat and a high, high fat and a high carb diet, you will tend to smooth out to an extent that roller coaster. However, the high fat, high fat, high fat, high carb diet is uh, an obesity diet. Okay. But you are, the goal is you are trying to slow that down. You are trying to flatten that out. So f- what they call functional hypoglycemia. So when you have eaten your carbs and now your insulin comes out and it puts you into a glucose level that is low, usually means below 70, you're suddenly going to have to release stress hormones 
to make sugar, make glucose for you, and you're going to get extremely hungry. So you're going to go out and eat again. So you're binging, and then you're famished, and then you got to eat again. You're binging, famished, and eat again. And that's the roller coaster. And you can measure that. I hope that we've talked about CGMs, continual glucose monitors, and the really expensive ones. And the difference, by the way, between really expensive ones and the lower cost ones that we use called uh, Freestyle Libra is the unit, the interval of time in which they measure. So if you have like a Dexcom, I think they're a Dexcom 6 now, they will measure it, I believe it's every minute, might even be every 30 seconds. And so they get a very clear, exact glucose level in your blood, and that attaches to your a capillary, right into your blood. So it's immediate. You see it printed out. Whereas Freestyle Libra, it gets measured once every 15 minutes. So it's a looser correlation, but it's still very helpful. But the cost is $40 versus $1,000. So that's why, we're, and you can still read the, the curve, the graph is still relevant to that person's diet, and you can see significant changes. So when you, we compare those diets to somebody who's just a carb eater, I, I mean a normal American or Western diet person, you'll see that they will be hyperglycemic and then go through spells of hypoglycemia. And then if you shift them away from carbs and into fats and proteins, you're going to see this line, all the peaks are going to be lower and all the troughs are going to be not as low. And so you're now trying to get almost a straight line. And we've talked about that. And uh, I guess to the point like mine, when I put on my CGM and print out my graphs to compare to people we're working with, it's kind of a boring straight line. And they kind of wondered, do I eat anything that's interesting? I eat a lot of things that are interesting. It just doesn't hit me in terms of uh, increasing my glucose levels. Okay, here's something interesting. This is maybe what I'll be calling this podcast. I don't know at this point, but it's how farmers make hogs fat. So farmers feed, there's two ingredients to make hogs fat. And you obviously want a fat hog. It's a heavier hog and you get more money for a heavy fat hog, right? So what are the two things? One is you give them whey. First of all, we're going to assume you had cows, <laughs> you're, you had a dairy farm as well, or you had access to a dairy farm. So the waste products for dairy farming are generally, have always been considered whey. So when you're making cheese, you have the curds in the whey and they throw out the whey. Well, you take the whey and you take it out to the pig pen and you just dump in the whey. The whey is a combination of a lot of different amino acids um, called whey, and they are very hyperinsulinemic. So insulin, high insulin shoves all that glucose into the fat cells and you're making a fatter whatever, fatter human if the human's having that. And it's a growth hormone too. So, But the other thing that I think you'd be surprised about is one of their secret ingredients, and I say that parenthetically, is skim milk. So why would skim milk help hogs be fat? Let me read you something from, well, I believe it's the 18, 1880s. Skim milk is one of the most valuable adjuncts of the farm for fattening swine. Used with corn, kaffir corn, or any of the common grain byproducts, an almost ideal ration is formed. Hogs like it and relish rations mixed with it as is, so think of the carbs, anyway, I'll read on. As a result of five years work in feeding skim milk at the New York station at Cornell University, it is concluded that the most economical returns 
are secured when the milk is fed with cornmeal. The proportion of cornmeal to skim milk may vary without apparently affecting the results, but in no case should the amount of skim milk fed by be greater than the pigs can quickly and easily consume. So it's skim milk. So what is skim milk? Skim milk is basically milk with the fat removed, right? So now we're having, in essence, a high-carb milk. So we're having some protein, but also it's a high-carb milk, and now we're throwing in more carbs with the cornmeal, and that's the ideal hog-fattening diet. So if you want to fatten your hogs, that's what you feed them. If you want to fatten yourself, that's what you feed you. And that basically comes down to breakfast food. Might not exactly be cornmeal, but it's pretty darn close. And what are you adding? You know, especially now. But, you know, now kids are fed uh, skim milk. You know, they're worried about the fat still. You know, the skim milk and cereal, you're feeding it, you're fattening a pig. And so that's one of the reasons we have the obesity nonsense in front of us. I think I'll leave it at that. But it's one little caveat I mentioned I would mention about autism. And I think this is pretty interesting. So back when I practiced um, and worked with autistic kids, there was a uh, a medical was it journal, a medical book that you bought every other year, so it could sort of add in more research to it. So you're always trying to keep it up. So it's called Biomedical Approaches to Autism, and you can still get it get it on. Uh, I believe you can still get it on Amazon. So you'd go to the very end of the book and it would say of all the people, of all the autistic parents saying, which, which, which thing here of this list worked, worked the best for you. And so they had a few drugs to the top. And so what they did is they had antifungal diets. Diflucan and Nystatin are famous, cheap, generic antifungal diets. And so roughly almost 2,000 parents took this and they had about a 60% success rate. So that's a lot of people getting a lot of in the, um, right, 60% success rate. Okay, so what about special diets? But just remember the fungal part that I mentioned. Okay, the special diets that were successful, again, about 1,200, then it varied, were candida diet, which is doing things, uh, having a diet so it doesn't form candida, which is a fungal, fungus of the gut, by the way, fungal diet, pretty similar. Gluten and casein-free diet, which is wheat-free and dairy-free diet. Um, and then there's specific carbohydrate diet. So those are the ones that were most successful. Okay, what ha- what happens, excuse me, what happens when you have a high-carb diet? When you have a consistently high-carb diet, you end up fostering, um, creating an environment in which candida grows very quickly. So now, remember when we talked about uh, caprylic acid triglyceride, otherwise known as C8, which is one of the MCT oils? Well, way back in medical school, well before keto and I even really knew what an MCT oil was, I knew that, well, you gave caprylic acid triglyceride to a child or anybody who had candida. And candida would be diagnosed on a stool sample, send it away, and they'd say, you know, high amount of candida. So you'd give them, you'd give them usually as pill form, um, uh, C8, caprylic acid triglyceride. Now, isn't that interesting? So now, fast forward, we're finding C8 by the spoonful. Remember we talked about mayo, the C8, and all these other things you can do with C8. That immediately changes into ketones within 15 minutes of your body. It's very, very fast. And it, 
creates ketones that are now called bioidentical ketones, meaning they're made by you. There's nothing, they're not exogenous, they're not fake, they're not attached to anything. And so now we realize the opposite of the candida or the candida diet, taking something that treats the candida diet and the candida diet is a high in order to, to increase your chances of getting candida, you would have to have a high carb diet. Well, the opposite of a high carb diet are having high fats and the best fat to have to create ketones is caprylic acid triglyceride. Isn't that amazing? So those two pieces of information are separated by about 25 years, <laughs> right? So they knew that C8, we're going to call it, was good to treat candida. We didn't know about the C8 being good for Alzheimer's and dementia and so on and so forth. And basically it goes to make ketones and the ketones are pretty much an anti-inflammatory and they reverse a lot of inflammatory conditions. Pretty interesting, huh? So relative to notice at the top of the list was antifungal medications, Diflucan and Nystatin. So that's basically the same as caprylic acid triglyceride. Those are not, they're treating the same thing, but you can take a natural fat, mix it with your food, put it on your food, make mayo with it, however you want to use it, and you have an anti-candida, a fungal suppressing diet and a fostering, a diet fostering ketones. Fascinating, huh? In addition to that, relative to all this reporting of autistic, of, of parents with autistic children, is there, they felt their kids were better at various degrees, you know, by 60 to 70%, so the list that I'm looking on now. So I thought that was interesting to share. So what we're saying is mental health is part of this. Mental health, and I could go into depression and so on and so forth. I think I mentioned that at the top, um, that it is a big deal. You drop your the glycemia of your diets. In other words, you drop the rate at which your diet changes into glucose. You will improve depression, mood disorders, uh, schizophrenia, bipolar, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, autism. And you could probably say for, for the entire spectrum. That's Asperger's, that's dyslexia, that's so on and so forth. So with that, I'm going to end. I hope it wasn't too much information. I hope it was a uh, useful information of something you can do. It puts you back right where the center of operations for your whole house is your bedroom and your kitchen. The kitchen is really your medicine cabinet for the whole whole family. That's my belief. And I hope you believe that too. Till next time, take care. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to Dr. Goldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that I've gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they were overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So uh, please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. One thing I want to say, a number of questions have come in in which I've given this answer and the email didn't work. So just make sure that you're receiving at the same email that you sent it in. And I think that might've been the difficulty. So I look forward to your questions. I just wanted to make sure that you knew 
that I'm hoping to answer your questions. And I think this world of keto is not just black and white. You know, it's nice that it's simple, but it's not simple for some. I'm really trying to, you know, go down as anybody, any of you who have listened to all my podcasts, we started way back when history and evolution, epilepsy and so on and so forth. You know, now we're seeing some tremendous overlap in uh, various uh, mental disorders, such as schizophrenia or neurological disorders that are not just epilepsy. And also just for people and losing weight, it's sometimes pretty complicated for them to engage in keto. And so they need some help. And so that's the whole point of, at least that's what I think I'm doing, is exploring the world of why are there other factors? And so in exploring some of those other factors, we've covered addiction, we've covered hormones, we've covered uh, nutritional deficiencies, we've covered certain metabolic lab results, and we'll go further. We'll even get to more on genome and aspects. So these are all just contributions that make for an obstacle for some people to engage easily in the ketogenic diet. This is my belief, and these are the things that I've discovered, and I think other people have discovered some of these things, but not ever put them together. So stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.